uh, who wrote in regards to Rick Van Nutter's performance, his style of delivery was porn star level at best. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gold Diamonds and Death, a James Bond podcast. I am your double O host, Jonathan Watkins. I am a writer for all things under the Cinema Sense brand name and the co-host of the Behind the Sense podcast. Joining me each and every week for this endeavor, he's my thunder to my balls. Wait. Mm-hmm. 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 He's the thunder to my balls? That makes more sense. But anyways, he is the co-founder of CinemaSense. He's the co-host of the weekly podcast, Recotopia. One of my good friends, Mr. Chris Atkinson. Hello, I'm waving like there's people, but there's no people. I mean, there's people listening. They can't see me. Yeah, my favorite thing about recording podcasts is when I slip up and do something or mention something that's visual. Mm-hmm. But anyways, we're going to be talking about Thunderball this week, which was at the time a super, super popular Bond film. It becomes the most financially successful Bond film and will keep that status for a while. But anyways, let's get into it. We're going to do a little dip behind the scenes in a segment we like to call Eon Flux. This is a journey. I'm gonna make a movie! We have to go back, Kate. Wow. How did you know all that stuff? I did my research. I don't understand any of this. What the fuck is going on? We are going to scour through the history of Eon Productions and give you all the highs and lows that went into the makings of these films. Um, Before we get into this, just want to mention, while I do get info from online resources, I'm also using a book called Nobody Does It Better, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of James Bond by Mark A. Altman and Edward Gross. So if you are interested in, you know, reading up on some more stuff, uh, you know, with the Bond franchise, uh, I cannot recommend that book enough. It is, it's, it's been very valuable resource for me. So let's get into this. Thunderball is really interesting. Uh, we talked about Thunderball a little bit on the Dr. No episode. Uh, Thunderball was supposed to be the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also one where I'm going to have to talk about the book a bit well before we get to our segment about the book. But Ian Fleming and a couple of other writers, Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham, created an original screenplay in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is supposed to be the first film. Uh, Spectre is introduced along with Blofeld, and while all that is still percolating, Ian Fleming goes ahead and writes the next novel, which is Thunderball. And he basically just copies the screenplay. Uh, he has been working on with McClory and Whittingham and also chooses to not give them any kind of credit um, on the on the finished product. Uh, there are various stories on who came up with what. Fleming supposedly came up with Blofeld because that name was based on a friend of his, but then McClory came up with Spectre. Eventually, this becomes a lawsuit that the writers are involved with, and because of the legalities, the studio moves away from making Thunderball the first film. And like I said, we covered all this in the Dr. No episode, so if you haven't listened to that, um, you know, that's a high recommend. You should go check it out. But then over the years, this stuff is going to go through the courts. McClory still wants to make Thunderball, so as Goldfinger is becoming a huge success, McClory begins pre-production on an adaptation of Thunderball that would not be in the official James Bond canon. Uh, Eon Productions at this time is working on adapting on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, there are rumors that McClory was talking to Richard Burton to take on the James Bond role. Okay. However, he did want to make Thunderball a Sean Connery Bond film. Uh, that would be his first choice if it was an option. So eventually McClory and Broccoli work out a deal where Eon will make Thunderball and McClory will still retain certain story rights, which is what causes issues later. But for this part of the timeline, all is well, and Thunderball is getting made by Eon Productions. Uh, McClory also gets the official producer credit on this one. This ends up being a very successful endeavor. Uh, Thunderball makes $141 million worldwide. It would remain the most successful Bond film for the next five entries. Uh, when it's adjusted for inflation, it's about $684 million. 
to this day, if you go by inflation, it is the most profitable Bond film in the entire franchise. And while I find the conversations about including inflation interesting, at the end of the day, if Thunderball is released as it was today, it's not making this much money. Nope. Nope. It's a completely different set of circumstances that is going on for that, for that, for these movies to make what they're making back in the day. And like, yeah, do the inflation. Yes. It's a very interesting figure, but it, it doesn't tell us much about, you know, what it really would have made today. And as we've talked about on previous episodes, these early Connery Bond films helped form the template of what would eventually be the studio tentpoles. It's really interesting to look at how different the top 10 grossing film lists are then versus now. Thunderball in 1965 is the third highest grossing film in the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. The two movies that grossed more were The Sound of Music, the eventual Best Picture winner, and Dr. Zhivago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thunderball would probably easily beat both of those movies today. There's just no way a three-hour movie based on Dr. Zhivago is probably making top three kind of money at the box office in today's world. No, no, these, yeah, those, and those are, those are the two, those two movies consistently show up in that top 10 inflation, whatever of all time. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, again, those, those definitely would not make the, I mean, you have to go under what the rules are for today. You know, like, do you have, do you have like a million different streaming channels? Do you have like, you know, do you, do you have all these different distractions out there? Back in the day, like most of your entertainment was going out to see movies and seeing them three or four times. Uh, and and there wasn't as many. Yeah, there wasn't as much competition. So You were still getting some of these random movies 10 or more years ago, finding their way into the top 10, like The Blind Side or My Big Fat Greek Wedding. But those aren't the norm, and it keeps getting rarer that those types of movies are getting any kind of top 10 money. Even something like a Tarantino film could still be lumped in the IP conversation because a Tarantino film has kind of become its own thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just so rare that something that isn't already its own brand does this much at the box office these days, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just an interesting conversation to me. And even going into the 80s, you had movies like Rain Man finishing number one at the box office. Yeah. And I think it was by far and away number one, too. Rain Man was, like, destroyed the competition in 1988. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's wild. Um, so critically not quite as successful as the previous entries, but still critics and audiences, for the most part, still seem to be digging this franchise. In the book, Nobody Does It Better, Altman and Gross talk about the Beatles sensation that is going on at this time as well and say there was just a vibe in the air and, like, everyone just fucking loved England. Uh, so you've got this big rock band from England and this giant franchise that's really coming into its own. And I just found this idea of giving the Beatles some of the credit for Thunderball doing so well, and I don't completely disagree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got McClory and the Broccoli's on board. Sean Connery is back for his fourth time. I have heard critics talk and write about the Connery performances uh, going down somewhat because you can see sometimes what might be his frustration with still playing the character. But I'm not sure if I'm on board with that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's possible. Uh, I, I I didn't really notice anything all that much in this that said, oh, he's bored. I do think I see this later in the next movie, though. Um, but even if even if that's true, and it could very well be, I mean, think about having to do this character four years in a row. Like, it's pretty much your whole life at this point because you're making the movie for however long – uh, then you have to do all the promotional for it. You become super famous at this point. Like uh, the Thunderball, making of Thunderball is talking about how people are just swarming Connery for autographs and stuff at this point. Um, you know, and then, you know, you, you promote it. And then after you promote it and it's got this big thing going, you're doing the next one. Um, and, 
you know he's he tried to fit other movies in and stuff like that but it's it's got to be it's got to grind on you no matter how successful something is um you know it's got to grind on you to do that over and over and over this is why i've never gotten into the bullshit of oh poor actor who has to make a lot of money and be in a movie diatribe because we're all just human right Mm -hmm. but the idea of having my personal life just kind of taken from me uh to the point where i can't just go to a store by myself i mean that's fucking weird I don't care who you are and how well adjusted you are. That would be hard to adapt to. And I'm sure that can come across in the way you're dealing with the press or the way you are upset or parts of your performance. And I'm sure I'm sounding like a broken record, but at this time there just aren't franchises to compare it to sequels up until now. were always looked at as diminishing returns uh, studios. When they made sequels at this point are just getting as many out there until they start losing money on them. Whereas each bond film to this point, it's a bigger spectacle and it's paying off big time in 1965. There's basically nothing to compare the bond franchise to. Uh, structurally not really no it almost feels like they're at a level right now where any bond film they released would be a huge hit they could have released man with a golden gun at this point and it might have been the most successful bond film yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's it's you're what you're saying is is that it's not necessarily the movie thunderball it's it's that any bond movie that they could have come out with at this point they have so much momentum basically that uh that it, that they would have done this kind of business it feels like they took what they thought people loved in goldfinger and decided to go bigger and hopefully that would make it better with thunderball we're going to give you more gadgets and we're going to do this with the female character we're going to make the villain also mm-hmm. a huge focus uh whether or not that makes the movie itself better or even good is obviously one person's opinion but regardless it feels like more of an extension of goldfinger than the previous films felt like an extension of each other or felt like extensions of each other if i could talk correctly uh, it seems to be also adding these what if scenarios, like what if there were fights underwater or sex or sex. <laughs> so two of the biggest ideas that most people attribute to McClory are the Bahamas setting and the underwater fights. Mm-hmm. At the time there were movies being made set underwater, like 20,000 leagues under the sea and beneath the 12 mile reef. These were a couple of the movies that influenced the idea for McClory. And uh, Taron Chung comes back to direct. Uh, this will be his final Bond film. They did want Guy Hamilton to come back and direct Thunderball, but Hamilton did not want to come back and direct another Bond film. Yeah. In in the making of Thunderball, he said, I pretty much don't have, didn't have any more ideas, which is funny because he goes on to do like three or four more of these. So, uh, But he, he said that, you know, um, <laughs> that he had he'd just run out of ideas. And I think... I mean, look at, I mean, again, we go back to this production schedule. These guys are making a movie immediately after the other one comes out. And, you know, so I can't, I can't, I can't even believe some of these guys came back, you know, like one year after another, that type of thing. So it's kind of like when we got to speak to Darren Lynn Bowsman a couple years ago, and he was talking about directing the Saul films and how these crews have been working together every year, making these films together. So the director can at times feel like they aren't even needed. Mm hmm. And I'm sure there was a similar situation on the Bond films with the same crew members coming back and already knowing their job before filming starts. There's something to be said that these are just big TV productions, right? Because they're, 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 they're meant to be made for something every year. And I don't mean to demean TV productions. It may sound like I'm trying to demean TV productions. Like it's, oh, it's so easy to do this, this kind of thing. I mean... You know, I think in a way, TV production is probably doing more than what a movie has to do, um, right? Because they're they're having to come out with hours and hours and hours of content. Although they're more like, 
you know, they, they have, they, they, TV schedules are more like, let's get this going. Let's do this. Let's blah, blah, blah. Movie schedules a little bit, a little bit, I guess a little bit more laid back, but, um, but uh, it is kind of like a glorified TV show when they keep coming out with a new episode every year, essentially. And you hear a lot of that kind of talk with the MCU movies in that they feel almost more like episodes of a TV series with a giant budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Marvel is making television, but even before they were making television, the movies kind of felt like television shows. Uh, one thing I did forget to mention, they did write a new script. Some of the things they left out that were in the original script included a storyline centering around an airplane of celebrities. Uh, the bomb was actually going to be on this airplane. Okay. Uh, the Russians were the main villain, which ties in with the early Bond novels where you got a lot of Russian villains. Uh, then it was going to be the Sicilian Mafia. And then Spectre would be kind of a catch-all organization. Uh, Spectre stands for Special Executives for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. And like I've said on past episodes, in the books up to this point, it was Smirsh. And they were mostly Russians. So mm-hmm. this ended up being the first novel that introduced Spectre. Yeah, it is... It's weird. It's it's weird, isn't it? Because I I was under the impression for some reason that Blofeld, like as a character, like as someone as you can see, uh, instead of like constantly being hidden behind, like in, especially in this movie, where it's just hidden by some weird blinds or something. Like I I for some reason I thought the actual character that we could see had been introduced well before this and it really he really hasn't it's not until donald pleasance really until next the next movie i think that we that we see blofeld so and adolfo i'm going to screw up this actor's name adolfo seeley that sounds that sounds good to me or selly something like that yeah he plays emilio largo the specter uh i don't remember what number he is he's number two yeah yeah so he's the main villain i will say because because I thought this was interesting. I was reading an interview with him. He was saying when people come up and talk to him about this movie, they either A, think he was Goldfinger, mm-hmm. or B, they think he's Blofeld. Yeah. And uh, the Blofeld part kind of makes sense to me, because in my head I'm thinking, oh, Blofeld isn't the main villain in this movie? Yeah, yeah. The the, the whole eye patch thing is so iconic, and of course they did it in Austin Powers, too, with you know the Robert Wagner and everything, but... Uh, uh, it's so iconic that you, that, yeah, it's easy to remember. This is easy to forget that he's neither Blofeld nor Goldfinger. He's just playing Largo as his name. So, yeah. And, and this is no knock on the actor. He's a fine actor and was a successful actor and has a lot of IMDb credits. This is probably the American Mm -hmm. film he is most known for. Uh, he was also in another movie that also came out in 1965 called the Von Ryan Express, which is a, a Frank Sinatra, uh, movie, I believe maybe a war movie, I think, or a heist movie, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, as for the rest of the cast, we've got uh, Claudine Auger. Uh, she plays Domino. Uh, Julie Christie was originally up for the role. Yeah. And and to no one's surprise at this time, Raquel Welch was considered, yeah. uh, which I would, which I think she would have been great. She's probably a little underrated as an actress. If you've never seen the original Bedazzled, where she stars with Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, that's definitely a recommend. And uh, Faye Dunaway was also considered. We're, we're still a couple years away from her, you know, hitting it big uh, with Bonnie and Clyde. Luciana Paluzzi originally auditioned for Domino and ended up landing the role of Fiona. And I'm sure she would have been great in the role, but I love her in the Fiona role. Well, apparently, apparently she really enjoyed being uh, cast this way, too. She was, yeah, she wanted it. She, she definitely went for the Domino character, but she's like... They they told her you get you know the whole you got some good news and bad news the bad news you didn't get Domino but the good news is you're gonna play Fiona Volpe so um, I would not be shocked if Xenia Onatope from Goldeneye is partially based on Fiona but uh, Luciana really nails the role 
Mm-hmm. And I just love when they have a female character uh, who could clearly not give two shits about Bond. Mm-hmm. Moving on, uh, we've got Felix Leiter back, played by Rick Van Nutter, uh, the third person playing the role. Yep. Yep. They can't keep any Felix Leiters at this point. Like, it's just always different guy every time. It's a thankless. It is a thankless role, though. It's so, like, yeah. Uh, and that's never really changed. We've had actors we like in this role. Sure. So maybe that gives the impression that the role is a little better in those films. But, yeah, I'm really not getting into this character at all as we go through these films. Yeah, but this is he's a, he's a babysitter in this movie, essentially. Like, you know, there's a point where... Bond has to leave and is uh keep an eye on Domino for me and when he, he's a, kind of the same in the last movie too where it's just kind of like we're around it's as if there just has to be American representation you know that they just felt like they had to do that uh, there's a critic Glenn Oliver uh, who wrote in regards to Rick Van Nutter's performance his style of delivery was porn star level at best yeah <laughs> yeah 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 so we talked a little already how they're starting to stick to the formula we've got we've got I guess gadgets. Uh, the Aston Martin is back. Uh, we've got jetpacks, if you want to count those. Uh, they don't appear to be very useful, though. Mm-hmm. Yep. They were... That was a thing. That was a thing, though. Like, the the the, the, the scene itself, when you have Connery, because it's obviously, like, green screen, blue screen, whatever. Uh, but there were only two people, apparently, in the world who were licensed to be able to f- to fly the jetpack. And there was even a there was even a story about how they wanted the person to not wear a helmet because that's what James Bond would do. And that guy was like, "Nope, not doing that." <laughs> it looks like you could run faster than the jetpack. I mean, the jetpack apparently slows you down from what it what it looks like in this movie well that whole scene is so silly i understand what they're going for it's like oh cool jetpack like cool jetpack or whatever but he does you're right he doesn't go anywhere that doesn't get him away like he still gets shot at by the end of it ken adams of course is back doing the production design and his effect on the franchise and honestly future big budget studio temples uh is something i'm really mm-hmm. only picking up watching these now back to back and doing all this research uh for this movie he designed the disco volante which is a yacht that they bought and then they basically added another boat to it yeah so that it could have that separation to it or whatever and it was one of those things where they were like you'll never be able to do this or whatever and he found a way to do it yeah anytime that you see something like re- over the top silly as far as like a gadget or uh, a lair or any kind of place that they're at that's ken adam essentially um except for the one was it uh he doesn't do the one um because uh he, he just did dr strangelove and then there may be this one he didn't do in this four i don't think he's on from russia with love yeah from russia with love is the one he didn't do yep so we talked mm-hmm. earlier about how they wanted to have some underwater fights. They didn't realize the amount of time it would take to complete these sequences. Even something as simple as filming someone walking underwater uh, presented quite the challenge. And um, another interesting tidbit about the release of the film, when it opened in Times Square, they ran the film 24 hours a day for a bit. Uh, and the Times Square Theater claims they were the first theater to run a film for an entire day. They were surprised at how much business they were getting, even at the super late time slots. But yeah, I think that kind of wraps up behind the scenes. Uh, did you have anything else to talk about? No, I don't think so. I think it pretty much covered it. So we will go into our next segment where we will talk about our personal thoughts on the film. And that is in a segment we like to call a review to a kill. I've got you in my sights. 
Get the fuck out of my sight before I demolish you. What we've got here is failure to communicate. There's no need to shout. I'm not shouting. Why don't you stop your whining and get on with it? I've heard this shit before. We are going to give you our thoughts on whatever film we are discussing this week. This week we are discussing 1965's Thunderball. Mm-hmm. Chris, I assume this is another one of these that you came to as an adult. What are your overall thoughts in regards to Thunderball? Yeah, and and more and more, uh, I don't know uh, if this, you know, the question that you ask, if you know, if I've ever seen this before, or whatever. Like, there's probably some movies back in this day that I saw when I was a kid, and then didn't remember it until I, I mean, and didn't remember it, and then watched it. Uh, the first time I remember watching this was again when I was doing the whole uh, marathon of these uh, back in 2006. But Thunderball was a weird experience because it was a movie that, you know, the name of it is something that is super famous. It's a Connery because everybody loves Connery. And I remember it leaving me a little bit cold. And I still watched a lot of the behind the scenes back then, too. Uh, and I remember seeing some featurette where there were like these Thunderball fans who were like, uh, setting up special screenings of Thunderball back in like, I don't know how long ago this was, but, but you know, you'd see they had a, a featurette and maybe even be on this Blu-ray that I have today. I just didn't, I didn't see it, but, um, but they're talking about like, you know, special screenings of Thunderball. Like it's the most special of all the bonds and everything, but there's always been something that's left me a little cold about this and I can't quite put my finger on it. I don't know if it's, uh, because it, it, it seems to meander to, uh, it just seems to meander a little bit. And there's the, the underwater fight is quite something. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that takes a lot to stage. Obviously that's a lot of stuff going on all at once. Um, but it takes a long time for him. I don't know. It just takes a long time for him to, you know, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of just like, um, it seems like he's just waiting until they, they, they make their seem like there's a ticking clock here and there is, but there never seems to be any danger that he could fail or anything. There's never any, um, I'm definitely not feeling much of any stakes when I'm watching this one. Right. Yeah, I mean, it says they are. They've aimed this. They're going to aim this nuclear warhead at Miami. That's the that's the stakes. But like, I never get the sense that that's ever going to be a problem. They they try to make it a point because they show that one dude in the British Parliament who's like, "Guess we're just going to have to pay these guys." He says it like three times in the movie. And like, yeah, we get where you're from, dude. We understand that you you want to pay these guys if we can't. We, we're going to do that if we can't get this this nuclear missile or whatever. But I never get the sense. Even on the last time he says it, he's like, well, we've got 14 hours. And I'm like, that sounds like a lot. Honestly, the thing I keep having to ask myself, though, is why is there so much focus on Bond? His involvement in this entire movie is so random and relies on so much chance. And I guess we should mention what we're talking about because at the beginning of this movie, Bond is at this health clinic. Um, I can't recall if they specifically say why he's there in the movie, but the book is a legit concern that the higher-ups at MI6 have about Bond's health. So that's why he's there, and then while he's there, he finds out about this plot to plan a double at this guy to switch out with the actual person. Yeah, exactly. That's the that's one thing that I didn't understand either. Like, like how does how has he just happened to be here? He's not he's not on a case. 
No, not at all. In fact, they keep telling him to quit uh, calling them because mm-hmm. he's supposed to be relaxing. He almost gets himself killed. Yeah. But then M just decides to send Bond to Nassau to find out more, even though he's on leave. And MI6 is making a big deal about that leave. Well, he saw... Uh, so, yeah, he saw this one guy, and then he re- he sees the sister's name on the Thunderball dossier. That's the that's the reason why he's, he says he needs to go to Nassau. So... I don't know why. I mean, I don't know. I didn't see the part on the dossier that says she's super important, but maybe they know that she's affiliated with Largo at this point. That's maybe maybe the reason why. I, you just see her name very briefly on this dossier, and that's that's whatever. But um, but yeah, um, that 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 just that scene at the beginning, and then we spend a lot of time. I think it's. I think it's cool that we're we're seeing that there's a doppelganger here, the guy who's like had surgery on his face, and and uh, he's gonna be this guy, and he's gonna take over this plane, he's gonna steal these missiles and everything. But then of course he's got to be greedy too, so they have to kill him as well. They have to kill the doppelganger guy. All this effort to show like a a, a guy who's taking somebody's identity, and then he's dead by minute thirty or whatever. And that's fine. I just, I just think we were just spending a lot of time when we, when the story should sort of be moving. Like I said, I don't think it has anything to do with the actor, but the way Largo is written, I don't find him all that interesting. And honestly, a lot of this movie just feels like a response to all that worked in Goldfinger, and they are duplicating it to the best of their ability in this film, which is crazy because it's barely a year later that the film is released. It would have had, it would have had to have been started on during the filming of Goldfinger. But it all just feels really tired. There's like no energy in the movie. It mm-hmm. almost feels like there's no forward motion, which is crazy in a big action movie. There's just no urgency. Yeah, and going back to the whole we've got 14 hours bit, and that should lead to a sense of urgency, but everyone is still just taking their time. Yeah. There's a and there's a point where he it looks like he's he's uh shaking Fiona and the and the henchman and then they just randomly show up at the place where he ends up and like it it extends even more they have to kill her off I guess um is is the main is the main crux of that but like just it seems like a lot of and just uh, it, even after he gets off the boat uh and like just randomly walks down the street she's driving down the street and picks him up and all that you know like this like stuff like weird stuff like that that just comes up i hate that they killed the fiona character they could have easily brought her back in future films and i would have loved that yeah that, that it's like why do you why do you want to why do you want to like take out one of your best assets of the movie when and i think they i think they believe and maybe maybe this is the case most people who love thunderball love them some largo i don't know but uh maybe they thought largo was the one who was really pulling this movie and they didn't really i mean you think about the time you think about the 60s they may have really underestimated the fiona character i i it's 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 just often very hard. I think there's some people who are probably huge Thunderball fans who are probably like, well, how come they don't like this? And I sometimes it's just hard. It's hard to articulate exactly what it is about a movie um, that that just doesn't just doesn't do it for you. Um, um, it it I don't know. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like Bond is doing anything particularly special to find the things that he's finding. Uh, it's not there's these revelations that he keeps running into it's like it's he's just kind of getting handed them in the movie a lot of time and a lot of time this is a lot of stuff that just kind of adds up after a while you're like oh he's 
I mean, he just stumbles on this health clinic. He just stu- he like he flies around in a helicopter with Felix Leiter, and he sees Largo's compound with the sharks. Everything just kind of gets handed to him in this. So I don't know. Maybe it's it. Maybe a lot of these things don't sound like huge things, and it's not like this movie's terrible or anything. It's not like it's not terrible. It's not even bad. It's just not. It's just it's just underwhelming. For sure. There are going to be Bond films way worse than this one. In fact, we're going to be talking about one in just a couple of weeks, and that's way worse than this. But at the end of the day, I just find a good portion of this one to be kind of blah, kind of dull. Yeah. And, and like, you know, I think we sort of touched on this. Like, there's not... I mean, I know this is kind of a tired thing for Bond movies at this point, but you you understand like how effective it is into getting you interested there's never a moment that you feel like i said you don't feel like the that missile is about to get fired at any moment like you don't like you don't get this you know it's it's all about them intercepting the missile before they ever before it ever gets a chance to be fired and that's 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 good work on their part but um but it just it just feels like it, you know you don't have anything you don't have a, a you don't have anything pointed at Miami you don't see like you know it it, um, it feels like they needed to have something like that where it was in a hidden place and Bond needed to find it and it was about to fire and then you know of course the the other issue with this is that the guy keeps saying we're gonna have to pay him off we're gonna have to pay him off well that means they can just pay, like if they end up paying him off and getting the missile there's no danger then there there's no there's no real reason that he like other than your pride and you don't there's no real reason to get this missile you can just pay off and you're good that we i don't know we may have figured this out why this isn't why this is underwhelming right because that there's that's the thing that in you know i'm going to compare it to something like air force one here okay air force one right off the bat they tell you we don't negotiate with terrorists so so that's off the table at that point and so it lends itself to having real danger when actual terrorists show up in the movie and in this one it's kind of like well we can't let evil get away with our hundred million pound sterling so so let's make sure we there's just no danger to that at all like they like you said like you said it seems like they're okay with it honestly watching this film it makes me more impressed that goldfinger works as well as it does because with basically the same formula thunderball has some really good moments but it's also really messy it's always on the verge of being something a lot more special, but just never quite mm-hmm. gets there. I will say one thing about Thunderball that I like more than Goldfinger is I find Domino to be a much more interesting character than Pussy Galore. There's a lot of things going on with her character in this, yeah. Uh, well, for one thing, she's got a more tragic backstory, and that the guy that they make the double of and kill is her brother. And yep. And do you know if the movie is saying she was Largo's lover? There's a point, yeah, yeah, I think it's because of the age difference. There's a point... There's a point where she says she met him somewhere else and and I and she says I couldn't believe that I found him attractive back then. And and uh and I think I think that's just it's the story of like someone who really enjoyed the money and the the wild lifestyle and then it got boring after a while when you realize you have to be with Largo 
the whole time. So that, yeah, so yeah, she's she's the sister of that guy. She's involved with Largo. Yeah, there's a lot of like different things going on with her in this. She does give a nice performance, and I think there's some interesting stuff there. But another issue I had with it was just the generic bad guy motive, which maybe it wasn't at the time, but I'm so tired of bad guys with nukes blackmailing everyone. Yeah, I will say also, and th- I mean, and this is probably to you know more along the lines of the production of the movie and everything. It is kind of. Uh, insane that they're using real sharks and that there are there are people having to interact with it there there was some stories about how connery of course was super scared about getting in that tank with the with the shark and there's he's not he's not acting when they show that one scene of the shark coming after him and they they ken adam built him like this plastic or uh plexiglass thing but there was a four foot space that didn't get covered and 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 the shark went through that at, at the very first um and then there's you know there's all sort of like the, the the special effects guy and i can't remember that guy's name it's like john stearns or something like that is one of is the special effects guy um was saying that you know there's that scene which they don't make too much of a big deal about but when bond is getting out of the water there's a shark right on his ankles basically and he just they don't even really i think this is a thing like in a in a today's movie you would have like 500 different cuts of the shark coming right after him as he's getting into the pool and that's kind of cool but they don't make it seem like it's a big deal at all when he gets out of that pool and that shark's right on his ankles but they said that that right there was a that was a scene where Stern I think it was I'm trying to remember if it was John Stearns was his name, um, um when when he he had to go out there and and um, John Steers is his name, uh he had to go out into this pool where there's still tons of sharks for some reason why I why are there still sharks there I don't know, but he had to push this dummy shark towards Bond in that scene and everything and they and apparently at first they terrence young wasn't getting what he wanted so he had to keep going out and he's like before i knew it i'm in the middle of the pool and i'm having to like push the shark and like there's actual shark so then like an actual shark thinks that the dummy shark is after him and then suddenly he's like they're fighting in the pool and he's like i'm i I just ran out of there real quick because it was like the pool apparently turned blood red after that like the there was all sorts of like craziness going on there's a there are a couple of you know pretty exciting scenes in the movie but i just feel like we're we're just kind of like waiting for the inevitable instead of uh yeah and I, and it also starts to sound like we're piling on here like it's like it's you know because we're trying to come up with reasons why it didn't <laughs> affect us that well but like it's just uh it's just something that just never seems like it uh, gets going anyway going back to the underwater fighting i do like the concept but the execution is just fucking weird well you it, the thing about it is that you know they do a pretty good job cuz they give they give the good guys blue masks and they give the bad guys black masks and it leads to one of the all-time well-known continuity errors of all time where i think i said all time already um but uh, where bond loses or gets his mask ripped off and he goes and picks up one of the bad guys masks and then for every time they cut over to him uh in one shot he's got the blue mask on and then when they cut to the other one he's got the black mask um uh but uh 
you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a mass of bodies, and a lot of times we don't know who's who's who and what's going on, and it seems like there's just way too many. From what we've seen, like it doesn't seem like there's a whole army down here, but it seems like they kill like hundreds of guys down here. Uh, and and I, I'm not even sure. <laughs> this is being wishy-washy, but I'm not even sure you can shoot harpoons with this kind of speed down in the down in the ocean. Do you remember that movie? I think it was called Into the Blue, where mm-hmm. they have this action set piece underwater where they have two groups of people fighting each other, and then sharks show up as well. I think there might have even been a shark biting a dick off, but if there isn't. There should have been. <laughs> and it's silly and ridiculous, but at least they just go for it. And I'll take that over whatever this bullshit is in Thunderball. I did read that Terrence Young wasn't a huge fan of the underwater fighting, though. And then just the whole thing doesn't... I don't... I was sitting there, like... And, and we've seen this movie, but I don't even remember, you know, what what type of things were we were saying. But I was sitting there just going, did they really have to charge in like this is like a battle from Braveheart or something... Like, did they really need to, like, go down there and, and just basically say, we're going to war now? Couldn't they have just, like, snuck up on them or some number of things they could have done other than get into that big harpoon fight, it felt like. And how well could you even see down there, even with the masks on? There'd be so much shit yeah. being kicked up. I don't know. It sounds a lot more interesting when you talk about mm-hmm. it than the actual end product is. I also totally forgot that we get sharks one movie later. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. And sharks become, of course, a big deal. I don't know. I don't know if 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 it's like pervasive. I know that uh, I know that one of the Timothy Daltons does have sharks in it, or has something like that in it. But there's a few shark things that are that come in later. But uh, the other thing about this movie, I know that la- so the last movie we we were getting onto it about. Uh, you know how pussy galore just suddenly just succumbs to bond because hey he's bond i guess even though she clearly doesn't want any part of it you know the character uh, the nurse character played by molly peters in this one there's a point where um she's not even at fault like he's on this machine and that uh that assassin dude um uh who's a lip count lippe or whatever um turns it up so that it's going too fast and that he's just getting stretched i guess i don't know it's it, it, we don't have any idea it's one of those things this is another thing that takes me out of these movies it's one of those things where they speed up the film to make it look like something is happening they do that with the car wrecks they do that with all the other different things in this but like so so she comes in and saves him at the last minute we don't even know what would have happened if he had stayed on it but you know it must have been horrible um he he like he he she says something like oh don't tell my boss about this or whatever and she's not even at fault she had no reason no reason to think that she was at fault and he goes well i don't know uh maybe if you like just basically says basically if you have sex with me i won't say anything and she's like no no okay and then just then they go in the steam room and they apparently have sex and then after that she's like of course because bond you know knows all 500 pages of the kama sutra he's she's uh she's like perfectly like she becomes a jealous girlfriend even later by the end of this scene like even after she said she didn't want to do this like he blackmails her into having sex with him and then she's like all right I like James Bond now. And it's just, I just would rather her just be a horny gal who wanted to have sex with Bond. And then, (laughs) you know, 
Uh, absolutely, that scene is just horribly uncomfortable. And then you have the whole blackmail aspect, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> it doesn't. And then he's like massaging her with a mink glove. Right. And then later on when he pulls the fire alarm and that woman is like like asking him a question and he starts to kind of flirt with her a little bit and then she comes out and like, yeah, but all of a sudden is jealous of this random woman out in the hallway and like, right, look, I get it. You know, I understand why, why they make this character this way. Like, you know, you want it. There's something about them trying to make him more of a man somehow he takes like i think even that i think that's even what's said in the song for thunderball in fact there's there's a lyric that says something like he takes what he wants or something like that some similar to that and it's and it's this whole it's this whole thing like you're not really a man unless every once in a while you like do you blackmail somebody into having sex with you Another thing I'll mention is that this theme song is bad, and part of that might be it's following Shirley Basie's Goldfinger theme. It's one of those where they fit the. It's one of those they fit the title in to the lyrics, and they don't. It's just for a rhyme, and it doesn't make any sense. So it's like. It's not like Thunderball is the name of a person. Yeah, it's just the name of this mission that they go on, and. And uh, I don't know if there's like some special. Um, I don't know if there's some special British meaning for Thunderball or whatever like that, but yeah, it does. It it doesn't seem to have any particular meaning other than this sounded cool. We're gonna make it call it Thunderball, and then like they make a song, make sure there's Thunderball in it, and then he that's a rhymed some you know he rhymed uh, all with Thunderball, so it's like okay. I love Tom Jones, but that doesn't save the song. All right, we're about ready to talk about the book, but first we need to get to our rankings. We are now going to rank this film in five different categories. Our scale will be based on something that Bond holds near and dear to his heart as long as they are shaken and not stirred, and that would be martinis. So for each category, we will rank from one to five martinis, five being the best damn liquid that has ever passed your lips, and one being the well liquor you had to settle for or were too drunk to care that night. Okay, Chris, how would you rank your overall feelings for the story slash movie? Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, yeah. And, and I, I have, a I, I, anybody who's ever heard me rate stuff before, I, I tend to go a little bit higher on my low scale. So like this is three martinis for me because, because I think once you get to two on my own personal scale, you're starting to get into a territory that's really like just yucky like it's the movie is just like starting to have this have like a but yeah i would give this three yeah i feel like my ranking might be a bit of surprise since i feel like i've said very little positive leading up to this but this is a three for me and it might even be a little better than dr no but it's very comparable to dr no i think so next up we're ranking the bond uh, what did you think of connery's performance and uh, just how bond was written in this movie yeah, I think he's I think he's solid in this as always, and I would give him four here. He, there, I mean, there's not much to really critique about this. This is he's now he's wearing this like a glove. I feel like like a mink glove, um, and I and, and like a mink glove indeed. Good callback there, um, but uh, yeah, I, I I think I think you know he's he's obviously uh, doing a. a as good a job as you possibly can uh, with this, with this character. I mean, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe, I mean, we, I guess if that was true, he, I'd give him a five. Right. But then like, 
um there's nothing like there's nothing like overly like amazing about it either so i'm leaning to four as well so we can move on uh next up we are ranking the villain slash henchman yeah i mean as much as i want i mean an eye patch character you 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 feel like should be like way up there and he's so i mean it's such a memorable visual uh, but there, but you're absolutely right about him in general. There's not much to him, even like, even like the scene where we're introduced to him and he goes under that secret place, you know, where they're, whatever they're doing at that one place, there's like a bank or something where people are like getting loans or something like that. When he go and they goes down into that lair and then that dude, the classic bond where the guy who's getting yelled at is not the one who ends up dying in the scene. It's somebody else who ends up dying. And, and Largo's just sitting there like looking at it going, yep, yep. Well, that's what we do here. We kind of kill people around here. Not a big deal. Like there's there. What is makes this guy tick man. Now I would give him a three, but if you're going to go overall villains and you put Fiona in this, then you have to give it to around 3.5 or four, somewhere around there um uh it's just it's just too bad that she isn't like if she is the main villain and they're just not progressive enough in the 60s yet maybe they're maybe they're maybe there are female villains back in this day that you know i don't know but they just don't think that's a woman's world it doesn't look like so they kill her before they let let her be the main villain exactly yeah i'm about a three as well don't really have anything to add to what you already said Mm mm-hmm all right, next up is the gadgets. Uh, the gadgets still aren't really standing out to me other than him shooting the water out of the car, I guess. But there wasn't much going on as far as gadget action. Then there's not much. There's the um, the little reed thing that he he breathes underwater that's supposed to only last like four minutes. and um, But there's not any like really cool gadgets, like nothing like super memorable. And we're even having a hard time coming up with they 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 ship Q out to this place, uh, you know, and they're like, here, you know, show him some gadgets. And he goes down the list of all these gadgets, and it's the only one that I remember really is that breathing underwater thing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this would be a two probably. Yeah, I'll go two as well. And finally, the Bond song, which we have discussed a little already. The song is bad. And while I don't think it's by any means the worst Bond song, and I am at a two, but I might be closer to a one than I thought I would be. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, let me see these lyrics real quick. I, there's this, I, I, I can't believe this is a thing. Um, he says, but he thinks that the fight is worth it all. So he strikes like Thunderball. And, and yeah, he looks at this world and once in all, then he strikes like thunderball. And I guess it's like, you're supposed to be strikes like thunder, you know, like strikes like thunder, you know, but maybe you don't have anything that rhymes or something. I don't know. See, this, I like, this is why I said there's probably some British thunderball slang and we're sitting here, stupid Americans trying to come up with like what, why, what the hell's going on. But I, I highly doubt it, though. I feel like we would have heard something about this. And, yeah, it makes no sense to me. It sounds like they said, Tom, we got a, got a movie called Thunderball. 
find a way to put it in. And he's like, oh, I got no problem with that. And he's like, he strikes like thunderball. And you're like, oh, yeah, that that works. And, you know, there's no, no, the, the, uh, orchestra playing the music is is good and he's a good singer so it's not terrible i would give it two as well uh the song all right we've got one more segment left and it is one we like to call the spy who reads me reading is one of my very favorite things to do whoa i'm not reading that crap summarize it in one word now you want to talk about reading let's talk about reading how can you read this there's no pictures Cinema Sins might have taught you that the book doesn't matter, but for this segment, we're willing to concede it at least kind of does. We are going to give you the nitty-gritty on what is similar to what you saw on the screen, what is different, and there will be plenty of what the hell was Ian Fleming smoking when he wrote this. Um, I think the main thing we need to wonder about uh, as far as potential drug use when writing was what drug made Ian Fleming think he could get away with taking other writers' contributions and passing them off as his own? I guarantee, I mean, look, think about Ian Fleming for a second, right? He's written a bunch of these Bond books that he feels like, you know, uh, as, as one would, he has ownership over that character. And and uh, I can see why he th- thought he could do that. It's, and, and, you know, it's almost that, you know, like the social network, right, where Zuckerberg doesn't think that that the wonder, the, 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 uh, was it the the Winklevoss twins? Winkle Winklevoss twins were the Winklevoss twins are going anywhere with their idea, and he just goes off and does his own own thing, pretty much. I mean, but that's there's something. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a story you didn't come up with completely on your own, though, man. So yeah, right for sure. This is the ninth book in the series. It was released in 1961. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is the first mention of Spectre in a Bond novel. This is Blofeld's first of what I believe are three appearances in the novels. Uh, Thunderball has been adapted four times. Uh, two films. This film in 1983 is Never Say Never Again. Uh, it was also made into a comic strip and a radio show. Yeah, and 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 we'll we'll get to this. It's it hasn't been remade other than that, but there is a similar thing I believe in Moonraker about stealing two nuclear missiles, and and uh, that type of thing goes on. I mean, it's not Thunderball, but it's the almost the exact same setup in that movie. And because of the allowances they allotted McClory when making Thunderball soon after Eon would have to stop using Spectre uh, and Blofeld, etc. Mm, yeah. We're going to keep running into issues like this with future films. What, what a fucking mess. Jeez. <laughs> to compare this to something going on currently, the Friday the 13th franchise is involved in a bunch of legalities. Uh, and I don't know all the specific mm. details, but basically Sean Cunningham, who is essentially the creator of the Friday the 13th films and Victor Miller, who's credited as a writer on the first film. um, They have been fighting over who owns the rights to what. And I think now one of them has the rights to this, this and that, but the other one has the rights to this thing over here. It's, it's a huge mess, much like, you know, the bond thing. (laughs) That's so weird. Uh, Anyway, it's not a ton that is different here. There's some introspective stuff going on in the book that can't easily be translated to the screen. Uh, there's a decent amount of time spent on Bond's thoughts. If you think there's not enough action in the movie, it's a fucking raid film uh, compared to the amount of action in the book. Uh, he's at the clinic at the beginning. There's a whole thing about MI6 being concerned about his health. Uh, there's a little more detail given about Count Lippy, 
Uh, in the movie, Bond puts the broom in the door to the steam bath contraption so he can't get out. And you find out in the book that actually led to uh, second-degree burns, and he has a bit of a vendetta against Bond after that. Of course, nothing happens to him in this at all. He's just he's just inconvenienced for a bit. Uh, but the whole, we've planted some bombs, and we're just going to set them off unless you do as we ask is still the basic premise. Uh, Elm sends Bond to the Bahamas on his hunch instead of Bond's as it plays out in the film. Uh, the Elm Bond stuff in the books kind of almost has a father-son feel to it. Uh, you know, Bond seems to want to actually make him proud at times. It's weird. Uh, there's a little of that weirdness in the movies, but so far, not much. Mm-hmm. Well, and and by the way, uh, just as a as an aside, the hat gag in this movie is just the fact that the hat the hat rack is too close for him to do anything. So he comes in. So he comes in ready to throw it, but it's just there so that he can't throw it basically. And then he comes back and the hat's gone. So somebody like Money Penny or somebody stole the hat. Uh, yep. So uh, so Domino and Bond's relationship in the book is a bit more intense. Uh, they even kind of leave it open ended at the end, uh, where you think maybe they'll have further relations. Uh, Felix Leiter is in the book a lot more than he's in the movie. Uh, still pretty bland though. Um, and apparently there is some stuff in Live and Let Die, the novel that carries over into this one with his mm-hmm. character. But I'm reading these in the order of the movie, so I have not read Live and Let Die yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also found it interesting that Fleming actually had to go to a health clinic, so he drew on that event for the novel, and even the diagnosis Bond is given in the book is the same as what Fleming was given in real life. So he was incorporating a lot of his real-life struggles into the books. Uh, Blofeld was a name taken from a guy named Tom Blofeld that Fleming knew, and the title Thunderball came from a conversation Fleming had about a U.S. atomic test with somebody else. Uh, There's also a scene in the book where Bond is on a submarine, and the book is giving his inner concerns about Domino, and this goes back and forth to the sequence where Largo is torturing Domino. Uh, This scene is kind of in the movie. It's the scene where he goes through her room, but they just talk. Uh, But in the book, it's just really uninteresting, and there's probably less urgency in the book than we found in the movie. Um, And that is all I have to say about Thunderball and its level of mediocrity that we seem to be alone in feeling. Look, you know, it's got a 6.9 on the IMDb. So it's it's one of these it's one of these movies that it's not considered one of the best. People obviously still like it because it's kind of a classic, but it's obvious it ha- it doesn't resonate with everybody. Um even though it obviously has huge fans, but I agree. Uh, next week we are stepping away from me on productions and we'll be tackling our first of two bond films that were produced by other studios and people. Uh, and the first one's going to be 1967's casino Royale, uh, which also will be the one film I will be watching for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Same here. Also, before we go, we have social media. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter. Uh, we are at goldspy 7 uh, You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter. I am at SamLoomis13. You can email us at golddiamonddeath007 at gmail.com. Uh, and if you like this podcast and other things under the CinemaSins brand, we also have a Patreon you can join at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. And if you have a second to leave us a five-star review at your podcast listening app of choice, we would appreciate it. Thank you for listening this week, and we hope you'll join us next week as we review 1967's Casino Royale. Until then, keep the martinis dry and shaken, the Baccarat shoe moving, and the Aston Martin fully gassed. This is Chris Atkinson and Jonathan Watkins signing off, and we'll see you next mission. (laughs) 